think that there are a lot of well-intentioned people who are in positions of power who don't have enough proximate relationships to suffering. Um, and in the midst of me being present, I think I bring a different dimension to boardrooms, to denominational meetings. I think I bring a different relational capita to those places in which I can steward my relationships for justice. Welcome to the At Sea Podcast. I'm your host, Justin McRoberts. Very specifically, welcome to season three of the At Sea Podcast. This is episode one, and my guest is Dominique Dubois-Gillard. Dominique is the director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Love, Mercy, Do Justice Initiative of the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is quite a title, and it's fitting because he's quite a person. He's also the author of a book entitled Rethinking Incarceration, which is the focus of my conversation with him. Our conversation picks up actually while I'm still setting up microphones. Full disclosure, we were both late to the interview site and we got talking and really hit it off and I wanted to capture as much of it as I possibly could. So I actually started recording before I was completely technically prepared. Regardless, from the outset and throughout this unedited conversation, we cover some vital and rarely trod ground in the areas of race and justice and a redemptive view of both political and religious power. Check it out. Yeah, your stuff's like really legit. I appreciate your setup. No, thanks, <laughs> it's 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 actually legit, especially when I have all my gear on time in the right place. <laughs> Which I did not tonight, so it's legit gear that got here late. There's your grace. Um so this <laughs> I, I, I like I said I don't always care all that much about this like the Amazon setup but this there's such a great left turn here this is from the Amazon page says uh, which is the setup for your book says the United States has 5% of the world's population but 25% of the world's incarcerated great stat we have more people locked up in jails prisons and detention centers than any other country in the history of the world again like wow punch in the face stat okay uh, there are more jails and prisons than degree-granting colleges and universities, and in many places, more people live behind bars than on college campuses. Mass incarceration has become a lucrative industry. I mean, all this is just like like upside-the-head kind of throwing punches, and the criminal justice system is plagued with bias and unjust practices. Now, and you even said this last night, like that's that kind of stuff has been talked about, it's been yep. written, it's yep. like we've been punched, and then you say this, and the church has unwittingly contributed to these problems. Which this is where you are coming differently to the conversation because for you the church and not as a not as a concept, but the church in practice yep. doesn't pray doesn't play like a hey, how do we help kind of role, but like hey, you drop the ball kind of role. Yep. Like you're part of why this is how it is. Like at almost any other time I had the conversation happen and the church gets involved, it's like, hey, listen, mass incarceration, all this sucks. Racial reconciliation. This is te- we're we're in a lot of trouble here. What can the church do to help? Mm-hmm. You come through the door of like, well, let's talk about the fact that like you have created this problem yep. in many ways. Was this a? I love that you're coming from the angle because it really does make this book different. Mm-hmm. Was this a thing? Was that the impetus for writing the book? Like, was it like I have to write? Say, I says like, were you wanting to write something about the church? 
or were you writing about racial uh, about about uh, mass incarceration? Was there like because it's not exactly both end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it was is this more like I need to write something for the church or I need to write something about mass incarceration? I meant to write something about Christian identity and okay. how we're called to be distinctive people and called to be set apart and lived in a countercultural way. Yeah. And how our inability to do so has continued to bred uh, social crises like mass incarceration. Huh. And this was a series of talks, right? This was like... Yeah. Part, uh, so part of what we do often happens with the podcast is we'll, I'll talk to, you know, to folks who are maybe more traditionally recognized as creatives and they'll talk about their process. How's the book happened? You had a series of talks that you were doing and someone approached you. Can you walk me through that? Yeah, correct. Um, two years ago, I was given a presentation that I had been given for about seven years hmm. on mass incarceration. And it was at the National CCDA Conference. Which is what? Uh, Christian Community Development Association. Okay. Uh, it's an organization founded by John Perkins, and I'm a board member of it now and uh will be celebrating 30 years this year as an association. Hmm. Um, it's a group, a collective of Christians who are committed to bearing witness in governmentally uh, neglected communities and hmm. trying to redevelop communities based on biblical principles. And you were invited there in what capacity? Uh, well, since I was on the board member, uh, I got invited there to do a workshop and lead a workshop around mass incarceration. We have three pillar uh, social issues that uh, we're committed to mass incarceration, education or access to quality education and immigration. And so I was there giving a presentation, trying to lay out the biblical uh, framework for why Christians should be involved in mass incarceration or combating mass incarceration. And in the midst of the presentation, uh, one of the representatives for InterVarsity Press came in and sat down and hmm. listened to the presentation. And then after the presentation, she came up to me and she said, this is the book that I've been praying for and waiting for hmm. since the new Jim Crow came out. We need a yeah. Christian response that roots this conversation for the church. Can you turn this presentation into a book? And this is what we have today. Which had you had you done that before? Had you done like long form writing kind of stuff at all? Or? Well, yeah, I have uh, two master's degrees, and so I had written theses for mm-hmm. both of those, and so um, not in a popular kind of way, in a more academic way. But yeah, right. the talks were developed for, for were they developed for specific settings? Not particularly. They were or no. they were they were proposed for Christians who. Mm-hmm were either unaware, unengaged, or underengaged. And so it was just a, it was more of a theologically rich uh, presentation about yes. why the church is, must be compelled to be engaged in mass incarceration. I'm going to read um, an excerpt from the book and then ask you to elaborate a little bit on it. Yeah. Because uh, it's a great uh, launching place for where you're headed, uh, at least for the first part of the book in which okay. you write policing failures are merely symptoms of problems inherent in our broader criminal justice system police bear a disproportionate share of the criticism for an inept system in many ways they've become scapegoats this line by the way had they become scapegoats of a morally bankrupt system they're the whipping boys <laughs> men <laughs> of a system marred by racial and class biases breeding racial profiling 
uh, and partial sentencing that is crescendoed into mass incarceration. So here's why I, this hit me, and this is why I want you to expand on it if you can. My experience of those conversations about uh, on the ground, on the streets, police relationships with people of color is over here. Yeah. And we're having that conversation. Mm-hmm. And then mass incarceration is way over here. And it's a completely different conversation. And you're tying them together with about two and a half lines here. Yeah. yeah. Can you can you expand on this a little bit? And I know it's it's part of what you do with the first part of the book. Yeah. But just spend a few moments as long as you need to. Help me if I'm someone who's like, well, okay, well, there's there's mass incarceration. I get that there's a problem here. I don't fully understand it. And then there's a the relationship between the police and the community. How do these things relate the way, like, how does Dominique see this as a relationship? Walk me through that. Yeah, so when you think about police relations and you think about police community relations, I think about, say, New York. A lot of people are familiar with stop and frisk as a policy in New York and uh, how ultimately it was curtailed because it was acknowledged that it was a failure. Um, and in stopping and frisk, disproportionately, you had black and brown people being stopped, frisked, and harassed by officers in a way that uh, exacerbated the, the negative uh, relating between police and community members. And But you also had, from stopping and frisk, increased number of arrests and um a number increased number of incarcerated particularly young black and brown men right. to the point that you know one of the national stats that we have we know today that an african american man has a one in 3 chance of ending up behind bars in their lifetime and <laughs> for hispanic males it's one in 6 and so you see that there becomes this correlation between how the police uh either stereotype one or two uh really police and engage and uh, surveil communities of color in a way that lead to a disproportionate number of people of color who are behind bars in a system that has become known as mass incarceration. And your take here about about police failure, you're, you're somewhat gentle with, the, uh, with your critique of the police. Um, I don't know if that's, a, if that's a fair characterization. Police, you know, police failures are uh, are merely symptoms of problems. And in the paragraph before that, you talk about you know police bear a disproportionate share of the criticism. Uh, Is that like, are you afraid maybe of letting a piece of this thing off the hook? Because then it's like, okay, well, like how close does that come to being to saying like, well, not all cops. Yeah, no, that's not what I'm trying intending to say. I will. I mean. There is a truth. There is not all cops, but this is not what I'm intending to do in particular in this right. uh, in this paragraph in this section. What I'm actually trying to say is I think it's such, it's too simplistic of an analysis hmm. to actually point the finger at individual officers and say that they are the problem because that's how you get the whole bad apple syndrome. Right. And the problem is we just need to excuse bad apples, but we consistently see. Uh, Officers who have actually confessed that there are institutional problems inherent within police departments where they're saying that they will get looked over for promotions if there aren't certain numbers of stops and quotas met. And 
when you see that, you see that it's not actually about individual officers, but there is a way in which they are being incentivized to participate in mm-hmm. racialized profiling and um, in quota-based uh, enforcement. And so if that's the pro- case, then it's not about individual officers. It's about a broader systemic issue. And then one of the other things I talk about broadly, more broadly in my book is like the role of like district attorneys, the role of judges and the mm-hmm. ways in which the system as a whole um, is morally bankrupt today and yeah, yeah. has inherent problems. So you can get, in other words, to some degree, I can get hung up on, here's a story about Mark Furman. Mm-hmm. And I make it about Mark Furman yep. and his racism yep. as a white man. Or Darren Wilson. or any, It becomes this <laughs> individual <laughs> list of the problem is this officer. And I'm saying the problem is not just this officer. But the, the, the system allows the system. for that officer. Yeah, the system allows for that officer. That system oftentimes does not... Uh, properly disciplined officers when officers act out. I mean, I think it's it's laughable to know that there can be instances where there is overt police misconduct or mm-hmm. brutality that is caught on cape, tape, and then people are getting paid leave in the midst of determining what yeah. will ultimately happen to them. What kind of accountability is that for the communities of color who are oftentimes bearing the brunt of what what the the misconduct? A story I want you to tell. There are actually two stories I want you to tell that you get to in the book, which I, again I'll say one of the one of the reasons I really liked the book and I think it really land with folks is that you weave together again like the, like the Amazon setup. The statistics, I, I'm not that we're particularly over familiar with them, but like that's a maybe easier thing to do. Like here's here's here are the the stats. Yeah. Can you see that this is a problem? You tie these stories in. Uh, in order to, to, to ground those statistics. Yep. And two of the things I w- I'd love for you to recount, one is the, the Catherine Johnson story, mm. which, which is for you, if I'm getting your story right, is a bit of an impetus yeah. for you, oh, yeah. kind of springboards you into this whole conversation. Completely. And then the other one that maybe uh, that gets to what we were just talking about in terms of the, the difference between interpersonal or intrapersonal Racism and bias versus like the, the, the systemic problem is to talk about the Tulia rates. Yeah, yeah. So can you first talk about about Catherine Johnson? Just retell the Catherine Johnson story and then tell and tell us about the you the way that hit you and like what that sparked in you. Yeah. So Catherine Johnston was a 92 year old grandmother who lived in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, she lived in in impoverished, institutionally neglected community in Atlanta uh, that was, you know, known for drug trafficking. And um, police said that they had uh, staked out her home and had watched and observed that her home was actually part of an epicenter for drug trafficking in the community. (laughs) Um, Because she lived in the community that she was, uh, that she lived in, her community was designated as a no-knock warrant community. A no-knock warrant community is a community where officers can actually enter the premise without having to present a warrant like they would in any other uh, premise in a, the entire country, except for premises designated as no-knock warrant communities. And the reason why they get those designations is because it is thought that those communities are so laced with drugs that by the time it would take for an officer to knock 
present themselves and present a warrant that the people inside could destroy the and flush down drugs up down the toilet and get rid of all paraphernalia. And so the whole reason for entering the premises would be benign because you, the officer, can get anything. So those communities are known as no-knock warrant communities. So at three o'clock in the morning, um, three officers come to Kathleen Johnston's door, kick in her door, hmm. and ultimately deploy thirty-nine bullets. Um, they fatally strike her five times, uh, kill her in her living room, and they go and search her house to try to figure out where the drugs are. Um, after doing a thorough search, there's no drugs, no drug paraphernalia, nothing. Completely hmm. clean. Officers freak out because they know what they just did. They try to cover up their transgressions because they want to keep their jobs. They want to remain free. Uh, so they plant drugs in her house. Um, and then backup comes and then drugs are identified. And then it looks like, you know... Uh, you know, prototypical murder scene. You know, yeah. drug transaction. Officers came in. Prototypical, with the exception of the ninety-two-year-old woman. Well, yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is a distinction. Um, and so, when it goes to trial, it ultimately comes out that the officers um, not only uh, use falsified paperwork to get the no-knock warrant clearance uh, mm-hmm. to enter into Johnston's house, but that they also get caught for their uh, planting of drugs and they ultimately get convicted and have to serve some time. Minuscule time, but they ultimately have to serve some time uh, for what they did. And so for me, this went down 10 miles away from my university. And I was a double major um, and one of my majors was African American Studies. (laughs) And my professors were imploring us as concerned citizens to be involved in this case and other cases like it. And they were imploring us to be involved as community activists to try to change legislation that allotted for no-knock warrants and things like that, that uh, allowed impoverished people to become more vulnerable and susceptible to this kind of drug raids and the violence that oftentimes ensues in them. Um, I do a whole section where I talk about the history of violence connected to these kind of uh, violent entry um, drug raids. Um, And so this was really compelling to me mm-hmm. because I, I as my as my teachers were imploring us to be involved I knew that this was right I felt it in my spirit but what was disheartening to me was that the call to be involved and to advocate for justice and to stand in solidarity with the marginalized victimized came stronger from my academic institution than it did mm-hmm. from my Christian uh, church. Yeah. And I knew in my heart of hearts if anything should compel me to get involved, it was with my relationship with Jesus Christ, not my intellectual academic um, engagement. And so that was one of the things that really became one of the impetuses for this book because I realized how often injustice was so close to us in the maybe the community right next to us but as the church how infrequently our theology was calling us to engage Mm -hmm. and see ourselves as concerned citizens who were interested in defending the interests humanity and livelihood of the least of these so i want to get back to this the the gap which uh 
between or the difference between the, the, the call you were hearing from like in a, in your classroom versus the call you were hearing from or the lack of a call you were hearing from the pulpit. Um, but real specifically, uh, before we get there and a kind of, a, I don't know, this is set a broader tone, kind of a more sweeping tone. The Tulia raids, this is not a story I had heard hmm. before. And it's one of it's one of those like how do I not know that story kind of story. So as I'm reading through your book and I'm and I and I like how do how is this not a story that gets told? And I guess there there's maybe some just really sad and obvious answers to that. But can you can you recount and tell us about the the Tulia raids? Tell me like what happened in the, this is in Texas, correct? Yes, Tulia, Texas. And so what happened in Tulia, Texas was that. There was an officer, an undercover officer who was hired named Tom Coleman. Um, Tom Coleman uh, was brought in uh, and he was in task with policing primarily the black side of Tulia, Texas. So Tulia, Texas is one of these old traditional southern towns where they're racially segregated by the railroad tracks. Hmm. And so you have the white side of town and you have the black side of town. Like a literal division. Like literal division. Where, like where the thing comes from. Yep. Other side of the tracks. Yep, the other side of the tracks. This is a quintessential community for that for that statement. Um, and so in this, uh, we see that Tom Coleman had been as an undercover officer making a lot of relationships with the African-American community and he ultimately had tallied quite a number of African-Americans who he said that he had uh, made drink transactions with and he was keeping a tally of them and ultimately they were going to go back and round them up all one morning in a big raid. (laughs) And so we see that what happens is on July 23rd, 1999, a SWAT officers come in in combat gear and they conducted synchronized dramatic entry raids on the homes of 47 citizens in Tulia, a rural town about 5,000. These residents were arrested and paraded half-dressed hair and kemp before the news cameras charged with dealing drugs. Amid the chaos, a neighbor shouted, they're arresting all the black folks, which seemingly looked hyperbolic as an assessment, but of the 47 people arrested, 40 of them were black. This number constituted nearly 30% of the town's black males and 20% of its black adults. And so when we when it goes to trial, we ultimately find out that Coleman himself is a criminal um, and that he had been fired from a previous police department for his criminal activity mm-hmm. and that he had falsified all of these arrests and that these people literally had been arrested on the sole testimony of Coleman (laughs) no other corroborating uh, evidence and so Coleman ultimately gets caught up because one of the people that he arrested where he swore that a drug transaction happened on a certain date at a certain time this woman had a bank receipt showing that she was in a completely different state at the time that Coleman swore that this drug transaction mm. happened. And so their his story starts to unravel and then in the midst of the unraveling they see that the vast majority of his cases never happened. There were some people he said that he had made trans- transactions with that he actually never even met. Mm. He just knew who they were. And so you had some people who ultimately 
Well, the other piece of this case that's really crazy is that because of the war on drugs and the way in which it has become this kind of financially incentivized um, war, you had a number of people who were arrested who, and I should say, the people who were arrested in Tulia were, by and large, undereducated, low-skilled people, some of which were illiterate, and they did not have the means to be able to um, hire high-level legal defense. Mm -hmm. And so most of them were uh, dependent on public defenders, and their lives were hanging in the balance because of the get-tough-on-drugs legislation that had been passed. Many of these people had no criminal records, but some of them were being charged with things like 80 years to life, 90 years to life for having just above the amount that would quantify for a felony drug uh, possession or intent to distribute. Um, And so in these cases, people said, well, I know I didn't do it, Mm -hmm. but if I take a plea bargain, that'll guarantee me that I'll only do 10 years versus 80 years. Um, And so- In other words, knowing or like dealing with, I don't even know how how to say it, but like just- sort of giving oneself over to it's despair yeah it's right despair. it's despair i'm I, regardless of whether of what's true this system from my relationship with the local police to who i am in a court of law to who i end up behind bars is stacked against me there's not a way for me to win this it's so it's just a matter of like how much do i lose that ends up being the interaction particularly in, in tulia uh where it was known that you were as a black person were going to go before an all-white jury mm-hmm. um and you weren't going to be able to have top level legal defense the chances of you walking away from that courtroom with the innocent plea were very slim to none there were literally legal professionals who advised people. They said, I know that you didn't do this, but but it's safer for you to take the plea. Yeah. And when you have a justice system that's set up that way, there is no way that people can truly trust the system to produce justice for us. Um, and so in this case, we see uh, that Tom Coleman ultimately um, is, is found uh, to be guilty of falsifying evidence, uh, making up stories and he all the cases are dismissed so all the 46 people who are arrested they ultimately get dismissed but what happens is because of the time i I believe it's something like 39 of the 46 people who are arrested get uh agreed to plea bargains seven people decide to fight those seven people in the midst of deciding to fight for their innocence ended up spending five years, some of them five years behind bars, that they'll never get those five mm-hmm. years of their life back, all because of this corrupt officer who was not held accountable and should have never gotten another job as a police officer after he was fired from a previous department for criminal activity. But that's what I'm talking about. It's the broader system. It's mm-hmm. not just about Tom Coleman as no. a bad apple. It's the broader system that has failed our community. That allows for Tom Coleman, in fact, trains yep. Tom Coleman. 
So one of the things I'll do with guests who are doing something along the lines of what you're doing is because part of what you're doing is redefining some terms for folks. Yeah. yeah. Like th- these are conversations that may, that like uh, some of your audience will maybe be familiar with and some of what you do vocationally, which we'll get to in a minute. Yeah. You're, you're using terminology that, that, uh, that Christians might be familiar with or folks, in the, but you're trying to you're trying to shed a light on some of these same terms of like, I think you don't understand, like you don't understand what you're saying when you say this. Yes. So you say this, but I don't think you know what it means. Exactly. And so what, uh, what I'll do with, with guests who are, who are working in that same direction is, is sort of this practice of lexicon. So I'll, I'll, I'll I'm just going to march down a list of words. I'm just going to say a word and then, and turn it over to you, let you vamp on it for, you know, 30, 45 seconds or so. And then we'll move on to the next word. I may have a couple follow-ups, but I want to start with the word that you've used a bit, uh, the word justice and the way this works. I'll just say the word justice and you're going to tell me like, this is what this, this is how this rings in my mind. Uh, You know, how do you see these words? So let's begin this way. Justice. For Christians, justice is about the restoration or recalibration of relationships in a way in which we act with integrity but we act with righteousness and with righteousness i mean with uprightness with fairness where we are accountable not only to each other but we're accountable to god who binds that relationship together restorative justice Restorative justice is justice that is focused on reconciliation. Uh, It acknowledges that there has been a damage that has happened between people in the relationship, uh, be it through sin, be it through crime, and that ultimately the ultimate manifestation of justice is when that relationship is repaired. Church. Church is <laughs> that was so yeah. good. You ramp it in. Church is the embodied grace, love, mercy, and justice of Jesus Christ in the world through the people who have devoted their lives to living in a way in which their lives are patterned around the example we see in Jesus Christ. And this one I wanted to hang out with a little bit. And you, I added this. I was at your event last night at Mike McBride's church, mm. and you talked for a little while about atonement theology. Mm. Yes. And I need this. Yes. So can you uh, and if, take take a minute if you need to find it in in the book? Can you talk about atonement theology and really specifically? This is problematic. Yes. So atonement theology. Yeah. Let me just read a little excerpt. Hit it. Um, yeah. Our atonement theology is important because it expresses what we truly believe about God. Therefore, penal substitution is problematic for a multitude of reasons. First, it declares that punishment was needed for reconciliation to transpire. It then says that Christ took on flesh not because of love, as John 3.16 says, but to endure punishment in our steed. This is significant because... It not only disputes a fundamental fundamental biblical truth that God's love inspired the incarnation, but it reduces or eliminates the significance of Jesus's incarnation and emboldens penal substitution to covertly function as Gnosticism, a disembodied faith which which teaches us that only our spirits truly matter and not our bodies. 
Penal substitution is a reductionist theory that forsakes the embodied life, ministry, and relationships of Jesus, reducing Jesus' body to punitive surrogacy. Penal substitution says Jesus merely came into the world to clean up our mess. Outside of establishing the possibility of reconciliation, not by love, nothing else Hmm. about Jesus matters. Not the spirit descending on him after his baptism, his inauguration of the kingdom of God, or his calling and sending of the disciples. So that's just an excerpt. I do a little bit more, but that's at the core of why I think our atonement theology is so critical and why penal substitution is so toxic. Yeah, and I, I want to use that as a launching point in a couple of seconds to talk about your, the, the place you, because that's the next place we're moving is to talk about your role vocationally in relationship to the institutional church. But I want you to drop two more terms for me here. And these are terms that we've come back to a lot on uh, on the podcast. The first one is whiteness. Hmm. I talk about whiteness as an elite, uh, an exclusive fraternity um, that endows its members with distinctive privileges that others are excluded from benefiting from. Whiteness is a way in which certain people are discipled into seeing, inhabiting, and responding to the world. It is discursive. It is. Um, <laughs> it's something that is both conscious and not uh, implicit and explicit. <laughs> um, it is something that has been legislatively sanctioned, uh, sustained, and something that has enabled. both a conscious and unconscious us and them mentality in America Mm. for far too long. Blackness. Blackness um, is antithetical to whiteness um, Mm. in many ways. Um, Blackness is the polar opposite. Blackness is something to be avoided like the plague for most people. But blackness for me and for many people in my community is a sense of pride. It is a badge of honor. It is a affirmation of humanity, resistance, resilience. Um, it is something that can't be stamped out. Um, mm. It is something that is redemptive. Um, it is mm. something that gives you a deeper fortitude and vision and integrity in your ability to understand the need to stand with others um, as a manifestation of the solidarity that the gospel should ultimately breed. Strong. That's good. One of the bits you write in the book that's a, it's this sort of sad launching point uh, early on is you write, I kept thinking if anyone should be, and this is in response to the Catholic Johnson's story. Yep. If anyone should be leading the charge, demonstrating what a morally and ethically rooted public consensus consists of, it should be, it must be, 
<laughs> must be the church. But as someone who has ministered in some of the cities crippled by mass incarceration, Atlanta, Chicago, and Oakland, I lamentably confess that we have failed to do this. So here's how I want to set this up. You got a question last night that I thought we got a couple of real strong questions last night. Yeah, we did. That was, it, was, <laughs> it was like, can we have some questions from the floor? And then the first two people let out, you're like, oh, wow, we're going to take some questions from the floor. Yeah, we are. <laughs> and the one question ultimately had to do with like, well, dude stood up and said, so you are, you keep talking about Christians as a key to this thing. Whereas I'm looking at Christians in the church and saying, but you are you are a massive problem, if not the problem. Yeah. So you, what you do right now, and I want you to, you're going to, I'd love to tell us like your job description, yeah. working for the Evangelical Covenant Church. Yeah. You don't, you, like you're not pastoring a church. Uh, you are working like at, like in the offices, like at the headquarters of a denomination. Like you work for the, dom- for the denomination. I do. You are almost as institutionalized as it can get <laughs> from a church side, of the, you know, from, from church perspective. I want you to talk about like your experience there yeah. and like, why not leave? Like, like, can you be radical in the way you're trying to be radical? Can you do what you're trying to do? So first, like, tell me about your job. Tell me about your job. Uh, and, and what it's called. And then tell me about this tension that this dude brought up. It's like, hold on, like, if the church is what you describe the church to be, it is it is the embodied grace and mercy, the character, the love, the justice of Jesus. If that's what the church is, then a lot of what's happening is not then church. We're not doing church then. <laughs> so what are, you, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> so what's your job and what are you doing? What, what's going on with you? Well, before I get to that, I think it is important for listeners to know that I have been a pastor. And yeah. so what I say also is fundamentally informed by that. Yeah. Um, I have been a congregational pastor. Um, but presently, I work uh, for our national denomination, uh, which is headquartered out of Chicago. And I am the director of racial righteousness and reconciliation. And so... What the, was that a job, by the way, that existed before you took it? Did no, it, it brand, was, brand new created job. Yes. Yes. And so um, out of the mission priority of love, mercy, do justice um, for our denomination. And so what I do in a nutshell <laughs> is that I create resources, experiential learning opportunities, and... scriptural engagement that talks about race, faith, and discipleship. And I also collaboratively talk to other mission priorities within our broader denomination to talk about the ways in which race and faith inform both consciously and unconsciously what, say, making deepened disciples Mm -hmm. looks like, or church planning looks like, or global missions look like. Um, There are ways in which I like to talk about race as a form of discipleship. Hmm. Um, and so when you take discipleship out of its Christianese and you actually just look at it in Webster, it just means to train, teach, and uh, raise someone to think and behave and act in a certain way. Um, and when you think about race, it's a, it's a form of discipleship that the church has kind of 
seen as outside of the prayer view right. of what Christianity is in spiritual formation is about. And so what we have is that we have people who have been racially discipled by the world to think about race, respond to race and engage with race in very p- distinctive ways. Um, but those distinctive ways are anti-gospel ways. Hmm. And because we haven't seen race as a form of Christian discipleship, we've allowed people to understand themselves as deeply rooted and committed to following Jesus, but to have this other form, this other deep formation discipleship that is kind of juxtaposed Hmm. to what following Jesus should look like. At the very least, disassociated. Disassociated. And so that's why, I mean, so let's just, yeah, let's get real with this. So like, this is like when we think about, say, lynching. So lynching is one of the things I talk about in the books. Mm -hmm. Lynching is one of the core topics. If this nation is ever really going to have real conversations about what racial reconciliation looks like, we have to talk about lynching. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about lynching. No. Um, we do, we do, we have snippets. We have these moments where it's a feature in a movie. Yep. There's a scene. Yep. And these terrible human beings yep. conduct this act mm-hmm. and the, and, and that's, and it's, it's couched that way. This is awful. It's terrible. We know it's terrible, but it's a moment. Yep. And it's this particular group of people over here, this isolated incident and doesn't have the, the sort of the broader like yeah the like you were saying it's not as culturally tied in this isn't part of a culture this is a thing that awful people do yep but we don't talk about it we might see them in the movies we might see a little glimpse we might breeze past the article but we the church we don't talk about it right and the church is the primary people who need to talk about it hmm. um, in part because what most people don't realize is that lynchings really started after the Emancipation Proclamation because it would make no sense for you to lynch your slave because you would be killing your own property that you were making money off of. Right. So as soon as African-Americans are no longer enslaved, you see this uptick in lynching. So lynching hmm. really starts with uh, the Reconstruction Era. And lynching, what, what most people don't know about lynching is that lynching starts in the Reconstruction era, and Tuskegee University actually started tracking lynchings and how prevalent they were, how consistent they happened. And can you believe that it was not until 1952 that there was not a year where there were lynchings in consecutive years in this nation? Every every year until 1952. Every year until 1952, there were lynchings in consecutive years in this nation. Hmm. That's way closer to us than slavery. And so people don't, people don't want to talk about slavery, but they really don't want to talk about lynching because our grandparents were implicated in that. Our great-grandparents were alive and well, but more particularly for the church, the reason why lynching is so critical for us to talk about is that lynchings most often took place on Sunday afternoons right after church. you kidding. No, 100% serious. Right after church, they were well attended by Christians, and lynchings, most historians will tell you, were akin to what a football game would be today. Spectacle lynchings. Spectacle lynchings were these events where literally there were social soirees where you would bring your entire family, you would sit out on a picnic mm-hmm. t- blanket, and you would watch 
somebody killed like a game bird. Right. And there were photographers hired. Mm-hmm. They would come and they would take photographs that would ultimately be turned into postcards that would be used to invite people to future lynchings. Some lynchings in this nation had 20,000 people who came and participated Mm. in them. And so you had Christians who were present in the audience, but didn't see themselves as really doing anything. Yeah, they weren't implicated because they were just watching. They were spectators. They weren't. The people who were actually culpable were the, the henchmen. Yes, the people which is again actually, how it's pre- which is again how it's presented, right? Yeah, again, yeah. Like this is the way it's presented in the film. Yep. There's a scene. Yep. Here's this horrible human. Yep. It's usually at night. Yeah. It's dark. This and and this 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 isolated incident with this isolated group of folks, and there isn't a broader culture that's associated with it. Yep. To be implicated in. Yep. Unless you're a member of the clan. Yeah. Exactly. And so the clan becomes bastardized and they become, again, the whipping boy, almost like what I talk about with police in the book, in a way that distances white Christians who were present, who were active participants from the crowd, um, from actually having to see their their presence at a lynching and their Christian faith as contradictions. So I can I can look down my nose at the Klan, I can poo poo the Klan, and in so doing, and 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 you know barking at David Duke and the rest, yep. I can do that in such a way as I actually I keep myself at arm's length from my own implication because yeah. it's actually about that guy. And I'm not implicated in it. Nope. And there's no contradiction between my presence here and my presence in church a few hours earlier. Hmm. And to be real, you have one manifestation where you're worshiping Christ a few hours earlier, and then you're coming and you're worshiping whiteness Mm. a few hours later. But there is no contradiction there for you because race has not been seen as the church as a spiritual formation issue so which then i'm going to jump all the way back to here and say this then that the 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 worship of christ married to and in sort of living in the same household the same mind the same heart as the worship worship of the violent worship of whiteness yeah over the course of decades yeah develops this it's not even an it, uh, tell me if i'm getting this wrong it's not like an insensitivity to it's like a um it's a familiarity, almost like a comfort mm. with racism. Yeah. As a part of evangelical Christianity, it's not like I'm an evangelical Christian and, oh, dang it, I've got to also deal with this racism thing. No, maybe part of being an evangelical Christian is being married to and participating in a system that is inherently racist in the way that it's been trained, in the way that it's been passed down since the 1930s, 1940s, 19. 19- 50s, so that maybe it's not such a shock that 81% of white evangelicals voted for a white nationalist to be the president of the United States. Maybe that's actually just indicative of the culture. How off am I? Or am I off at all? I would just nuance some of what you would say. Nuance this. Um, I don't think that there's anything within our tradition when we look at, when we exegete like lynchings and who are participating that really distinguishes evangelicals from mainliners. So I I, I don't Hmm. know that, 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 that for me hasn't been documented in a way that I can just sit calmly with that claim because I think that might let mainliners off the hook in a way that I don't think is right. Um, That said, um, you know, 
it, it depends on which way you want to take it. So you look, you read somebody like Jay Cameron Carter and his yep. book Race, mm-hmm. uh, and he'll talk about whiteness and Christianity as being sutured together in a way that you cannot, <laughs> you know, disentangle them. Um, and he talks about that, you know, from all the the ways back in a kind of colonial Christianity in a way that has never been really. Um, disentangled in this nation so i think there are ways in which yes i think i think part of what has allowed evangelical christianity to particularly white evangelical christianity as you just centered to vote in the way that we saw um in the election is one let's just acknowledge hillary was a flawed candidate too Mm -hmm. um But then part of it is that I think for far too many evangelicals, um, their political participation has become reduced down to one party. I mean, a one a one issue uh, vote Mm -hmm. and the one issue being abortion. Mm -hmm. And so regardless of anything else, if one candidate is pro-life and the other candidate is not then then the issue is already settled the issue settled yeah and so for me i think one you know we need to have a deeper conversations and this this was one of the things i was thankful for post-election we need to have deeper conversation about what pro-life is um from the womb to the tomb um and if we were to have that conversation, that would fundamentally change some of, you know, these, right. ki- these kind of things. It's a conversation that would also have to include race. Yes. Oh, for sure. Race, sexism, um, classes. Like, yes, yeah. we would have to take our bodies seriously mm-hmm. um, and not just our fetuses, but we have to take our bodies seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Well, what you said, I think the other thing is that evangelicals historically have failed to have any kind of true engagement and theological understanding of systemic sin. Hmm. All sin is about Hmm. individual sin. Yes. And when all sin is about individual sin, then you can do what you just said earlier about distance yourself from the henchman because Mm -hmm. you don't you're not the person stringing somebody up but then you can also distance yourself from the legacy of racism in this nation i didn't own slaves Mm -hmm. i didn't lynch anybody i wasn't keeping anybody which is how that's that's how the conversation goes almost every time now right it's like well yeah but i've got a great relationship with with my chinese neighbor and i go to a multi-ethnic church and i i'm taking care of my business exactly and that's just such a flawed understanding of race but also understanding of what our call is as the church Mm. as people who are called to live in the world not of the world but distinctively set apart in a way in which we embody the countercultural nature that Jesus did in Jesus' lifetime and you feel like I'm asking it seems then you feel like you have to do that from the inside institutionally if you want to like that you're picking up on the basically like the, the tone of your book yeah yeah and the way you interact with with and and address uh like church side systemic topics online 
it seems like you feel like if I'm gonna if if you were gonna engage in systemic issues, you, you want to do it systemically, and so you have you want to do it from inside the institution. You want to be an institutional presence. Can you do that? Like, is that is that a pos- is that possible? Because isn't it easier to say like this is corrupt, this is broken, so we need to let it die and build something new? You're moving into the old house and saying I'm actually I'm bringing my hammer and my nails and like maybe a blowtorch. I'm gonna see what I can do. I mean, the truth is, you always need the Martin and the Malcolm. Hmm. You, 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 neither is effective without the other. Um, hmm. I feel called to the institutional role in large part because I believe that there is a lot more transformation that can happen in the context of relationships, hmm. authentic relationships. And I think that there are a lot of well-intentioned people who are in positions of power who don't have enough proximate relationships to suffering. Hmm. Um, And in the midst of me being present, I think I bring a different dimension to boardrooms, to denominational meetings. I think I bring a different relational capita to those places in which I can steward my relationships for justice. I can steward my relationships in a way that broker different conversations, in a way that brings a kind of humanity to the suffering of people, Hmm. that issues no longer remain issues, but they are connected to bodies, to people, Hmm. to stories, to relationships. And I think those relationships that are really what brings true institutional transformation. Here's a, I want to <clears throat> land the plane with this and have you um, vamp on this for a, for a few moments. And theoretically, um, this seems to be the heart of uh, the book: yeah. is that Christianity is predicated on grace. Mm-hmm. You talk about justice in 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 the context of grace. Mm-hmm. You say Christianity is predicated on, predicated on grace, which opposes meritocracy. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. So here, I'd love to land this conversation here. Yeah. First, when you're talking about meritocracy, meritocracy doesn't just. This is what I'm reading in your book. It's not meritocracy is not just problematic when it when it comes to like the merits of uh, of those uh, like citizens, uh, and our relationship to our neighborhoods and who deserves to live in a neighborhood or who deserves to be let into the country, depending on which country you're yeah. coming from. Yeah. Come on, man. Yeah. Uh, I can't even. Yeah, I can't even. Yeah, but, but like, but Jesus, Jesus wouldn't have been able to get in. No, yeah, no. Most of the, so the, the meritocracy is not just problematic when it comes to citizenry, when it comes to when it comes to law and our participation in law, but it also becomes a massive problem. And I, maybe if you can say it like that, massive problem theologically in the way we understand ourselves in in religious community, you're tying those th- two things together. So I'd like you to begin by talking about meritocracy as like, as kind of, as a problem. And then, and then re- restate this, the Christianity is predicated on grace, which opposes meritocracy. Cause it seems like this is what you're trying to do vocationally. Yeah. Is to oppose meritocracy with grace. Yeah. To reteach the way we understand law, that we teach the way we understand church, to reteach the way we understand uh, atonement through the lens of grace versus meritocracy. So land the plane for us. Talk about meritocracy. Talk about how we go after that with grace. Basically tell us what you like. How, how do we follow you? Yeah. So meritocracy is 
the belief that you get what you deserve um, and that through your merit, through your work, through your efforts, through what you achieve, you ultimately get your just desserts based off that. Mm. Um, and so as Christians, any Christian should be leery of meritocracy mm. because we know that our faith is literally predicated upon us receiving grace that we don't deserve. Mm-hmm. If any of us got what we deserved, we would all be eternally estranged from God because we are not worthy. We are sinful beings. We are filthy rags that are ultimately only redeemed and restored by the grace of God. And so this belief that you get what you deserve for Christians should always be nuanced and distinguished by the fact that we know that the grace that marks our lives that has claimed us as God's own shall ultimately be a grace that is extended to people who violate the confines of covenant community, um, who who violate relationships through it through be it through sin, through be it through crime. But oftentimes Christians forsake that grace and I say and so jettison their birthright hmm. um, when it comes to responding to quote unquote criminals um, and the way that we Christians are some of the most ardent defenders and supporters of the death penalty. What does it mean to be a Christian in a religion that is <laughs> built around someone who was falsely sentenced and executed, put to death by the state wrongly, which, by the way, today, out of the people who actually are sentenced to death, we know one in 25 of them are actually innocent. Yes. Um, but we continue as the church to be strong advocates of the death penalty. One would think that given what happened to Jesus, Christians would think different, differently about the death penalty, but we don't. It's almost as if we don't really understand the core of our own faith. Exactly. Yes. And because we don't, we frequently don't understand how our support of get tough on crime policies, zero tolerance policies, these things that are designed to really set up strict lines of separation between us and them, Hmm. us moral people, us God-fearing citizens of integrity, Mm. and those criminals, those lawbreakers, those thugs, Mm -hmm. those people who have, who essentially, what we really believe and don't often say, those irredeemable people, Mm -hmm. those God-forsaken people. People Um, who should not, I I don't want to put the time and the energy and effort into changing yeah, because but they won't change. They won't change. So I need to protect myself. I have to protect myself from yes. them. So if protecting myself from them means supporting legislation that will quarantine them away from me, that allows my community to be safer, my children to grow up in an atmosphere where they're not tainted or tempted by these devious, perverted individuals, hmm. then ultimately it is me being a good steward of my resources and my vote to vote in a way that keeps them away from us. Mm. And so it becomes this way in which meritocracy starts to blur the lines of where we really understand our true citizenship to be Mm. and our true priorities to lie. Because 
if this world and U.S. citizenship is ultimately the best that it gets, then meritocracy is completely right. We have to keep us from them. We have to protect what is ours. But the point of having a theology at all exactly is to reframe your understanding exactly of, and, and your, your frame of reference for where you belong and to whom you belong it has to remind you who you are and whose you are and when you know whose you are and where your true citizenship lies you understand that no one is irredeemable no one is beyond redemption restoration i mean her whole faith is predicated around the fact that god said that god is redeeming all things mm-hmm. including all people to god's self there is no one beyond redemption. And if Christians really believe that, where we showed up and where we actually exercised our faith and did church, mm-hmm. like we talk about church, mm-hmm. where we did church, yeah. a lot of us would be a lot more present behind bars like Matthew 25 calls us to, as opposed to just trying to send people that we believe um, are unworthy and really undesirable away to those places and we would keep a safe distance between us and them man dominique thanks for your time yeah thanks for having you you got it man and of course thank you for listening to this episode of the at sea podcast you can and absolutely should pick up a copy of dominique's book by going to heartsandmindsbooks.com or amazon.com and the title you're looking for is rethinking incarceration rethinking is one word You can dig further into this podcast, specifically the first two seasons, by visiting atcpodcast.com. That's A-T-S-E-A podcast.com. And finally, this podcast is made possible in part due to the support, the love, and the attention of its patrons. If you'd like to join us, you can visit patreon.com backslash Justin McRoberts, or just go to patreon.com, not patron, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com, and search my name, Justin McRoberts. Until next time.